Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, then up as a podcast. You're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Tuesday the 7th of November and coming up on the program are diplomatic relations between Pretoria and Tel Aviv at an end. More on an alleged multi-million rand alleged bribe that was sought concerning the Unemployment Insurance Fund. How C-suite executives can avoid mistakes like the Diskem No Whites to be Employed letter. South Africa's new battle against malaria, are our vector control strategies sufficient and the increasing role of artificial intelligence in media as the industry's landscape is changing fast. The Department of International Relations and Cooperation has been told to take what is termed necessary measures within diplomatic channels and protocols to deal with the conduct of Israel's ambassador to South Africa. The presidency goes on to say the position of Israel's ambassador is becoming untenable after Cabinet noted what it terms disparaging remarks. Let's start the program with analysis from Sipa Mandlazondi from the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conservation, or conversation, should I say, at the University. University of Johannesburg. And first up, uh, Sipa Mandla, was this step expected? Yes, it was expected. Um, there has been, uh, you remember that the governing party had taken a decision to downgrade diplomatic relations between South Africa and Israel way back in 2017. That followed the 2014 Gaza war and then renewed that with another round of war. Uh, maybe even more difficult, more treacherous, that they were going to go back to that position. But they're not going to dig further, uh, not just to downgrade, which they paused, to now literally simply almost close Mm. the diplomatic relations, at least for a moment. That was expected, definitely. So what does this indicate then about the state of relations between the two countries? Definitely at its lowest right now, the exchange between the minister in the presidency and the or between the cabinet and the Israeli ambassador showed that it's completely unprecedented. So the, the relations are at their lowest, close to frozen at a formal level, and that cannot be good because diplomatic relations exist to manage those kinds of situations. But it means that the country, the two governments have become, the relationship mm-hmm. has become so frozen that we are at a point where it's almost non-existent. And that will have a bearing on uh, trade that happens between the two countries, on cultural exchanges, educational exchanges, on all sorts of other communication, people-to-people relations and all that. And that should be expected, that uh, other elements of the relations will then be affected because the relations between the two governments have significantly declined. What broader implications could South Africa's new stance then on this conflict have for its relations with other countries, particularly allies of Israel? Uh, We'll have to wait and see whether the allies of Israel would 
respond to this. The only real ally of Israel is actually not a state, if you look at patterns of voting, because it's a country, like when a country is in trouble, especially in the United Nations when you see who the allies are, when it really comes, when the push comes to the show, it's not a state almost as a country alone that stands with Israel, as in the last, the very last uh, resolution on the state, it was Israel, it was Israel and the United States that opposed the resolution, the rest of the country stood aside. That tells you that the other countries may not act on this, but the United States may be expected to act on this. But it seems to me, given the patterns of responses in the previous declines of the relations, uh, they showed that the other countries treated this as a bilateral and therefore did not get involved. But they would be worried because they did show that Israel is becoming isolated, more isolated in areas that are significant. Their worry would be whether other African countries would be emboldened to also now draw further and further from Israel because of this bombardment of Gaza. It's, uh, it's a difficult one for Israel. It's a very difficult period because it feels it has to defend itself, but at the same time, in the manner in which it's doing it, it is generating causes that isolate it, and uh, secondly, it might produce a stronger Hamas as it did in 2014. We've also in the past seen South Africa offering to assist in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of uh, negotiation, mediation and resolution. Given this decision diplomatically, uh, is that option now dead in the water, do you think? It seems so. It seems so because um, the only basis South Africa could position itself as a mediator, we can try and bring the parties together, is that it had relations with both sides and could count on having confidence on both sides there to bring the parties together. Now it has relations, it doesn't have relations with Israel right now, so it cannot it cannot bring the two countries mm. together. So the idea of a mediation by South Africa is, is dead. But there is no other country that can mediate between Israel and Palestine. It's only another state that has power over them. Not even the EU, not, not none of the other countries can. Anyway, it's the United States, only the United States that can do that. On a broader canvas, do you see or are you starting to see a global realignment of positions as a result of this war in the Middle East, but also in Ukraine? It, it seems to me there is a consolidation of alignments that have been happening for a long period of time. There is definitely a consolidation of alignment of those forces that are in favor of Palestine's cause to end the occupation and establish its own state that must exist peacefully alongside the state of Israel. But it seems to me that a bit more confusion on the other side for those who support Israel, because they have a very good cause to support Israel, but Israel's atrocious response to an atrocious attack by Hamas has kind of eroded the moral value of that because now Israel has under a very right-wing government right now, very extreme government has almost squandered that support that it would garner uh, from its its usual partners and even beyond that. And Israel by the way has grown its partnerships all over, even in Africa and stuff in in the past 15 years or so. But I guess that this bombardment of Gaza simply erodes quite a lot of that and creates a serious issue for the EU. I saw the EU foreign policy chief 
uh, talk about this, it's a serious quagmire for them. So they're going back to the traditional position, which is we need a peaceful settlement leading to a two-state solution. Sipa Mandlazondi, thank you very much indeed for that assessment. And very briefly now, I want to bring you some response to those developments, and this is a voice note from Professor Karen Milner, who is the National Chairperson of the South African Jewish Board of Deputies. The recall of the South African staff from the South African Embassy in Israel is a pointless, petty act designed to curry favour with Hamas. That the South African government is doing this now, at a very dangerous time in the Middle East, is effectively abandoning South African citizens in this region. It is particularly problematic that it is doing so without calling for the release of hostages or even asking about South African hostages currently in tunnels in Gaza. From a business perspective, it is even more worrying that this is done as the AGOA discussions are happening and places South African business interests at risk. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. In a new warning, the Department of Health is urging travellers to take precautionary measures against malaria. So, how worried should we be and who is most at risk? From the Department, Foster Mahali is with us now. He speaks for the Minister of Health. And firstly, why have you issued this warning? Uh, We made this call uh, for two reasons. Number one, we've noted the sudden rise in malaria cases in the country, especially in the high malaria risk areas or malaria endemic areas like provinces like Ukazetan, Limpopo and Pumalanga. But also on top of that, we are now in uh, summer season which marks the beginning of malaria period in the country due to higher temperatures and increased rainfall, especially in malaria transmission areas. This rise in cases, is it any worse than previous years? So far, the situation is still under control, but we are trying by all means, especially because majority of the cases that we have recorded so far are what we call imported cases. Only a small number of cases are locally acquired cases, meaning that a number of people got infected while they were out of the country. So we are trying to raise awareness to encourage, especially those who will be traveling to these high malaria areas cases or endemic areas to take precautionary measures in order to prevent possible transmission of malaria. Are you able to give me more insight into the current surveillance methods for tracking malaria and its spread in South Africa? In terms of surveillance, we have intensified screening and testing, especially in the border gates in the three provinces, the province of KZN, province of Mpumalanga, province of Limpopo, because they share the border with the counties like Mozambique, New Mozambique, the malaria in Jambique country, Zimbabwe, and the like. So we try to intensify screening to ensure that people who are coming from those areas through the baggage, they are screened and tested. Anyone who displays malaria-like symptoms, they are referred to the nearest health facility for testing in order to establish whether those signs and symptoms are linked to malaria cases so that if they are they test positive, we are able to put them on treatment immediately precisely because we've noted that majority of people, patients who come to our facilities, they only present them late when the situation is already dire. So we're trying to encourage people to say, anyone who experiences malaria-like symptoms, they should not waste time. They must go to the nearest health facility in order for the healthcare workers to attend to them, give medical mm-hmm. attention. Have you identified any gaps in surveillance, particularly in the rural or high-risk areas that you've mentioned? So far, we have not yet identified the serious gaps, but hence we, we say we try to cover all the, the 
pesticides, for example, we're also trying to, at the same time, try to intensify uh, indoor residual spraying, especially in the rural areas uh, in these high malaria burden mm. uh, areas in these uh, provinces, to ensure that uh, those people who are staying in those areas, at least they're protected, apart from other protective methods that we encourage them to take. For example, we uh, discourage people from having outdoor activities, especially after the sunset. We encourage people to use uh, the bed nets. We encourage people to use uh, a repellent, but also try to be uh, cautious. Those who are traveling, we encourage them to say at least try to get the anti-malaria pill, which is available at all public health facilities free of charge, but can also be procured at uh, the nearest uh, pharmacy without any prescription. I presume that you're constantly, though, having to adapt your vector control strategies um, in order to meet the current problem and if the problem increases. Definitely, we are trying different uh, strategies, but also one of the strategies to ensure that uh, we continuously raise awareness, not only during malaria season, but also throughout the year, because uh, we do experience uh, cases of uh, malaria even outside malaria season. So, hence, we say our strategies, our campaigns, they are 365 days campaign, not only during malaria season because it's of uh, this importation of cases. For example, uh, I mean, in the past few months, we were outside malaria season, but we continue to record uh, malaria cases, especially in provinces like Houting, because of a cross-border movement. People who are moving from these neighboring countries like Mozambique and Zimbabwe. Mm. It's not just cross-border movement, though. It's also climate change potentially altering the habits of mosquitoes. And there would need to be proactive measures put in place, I imagine, to anticipate and respond to the shifting patterns of malaria transmission. What are you doing in that respect? Definitely, uh, hence, uh, look, we are, we are absolutely correct that but about also the issue of climate change. Hence, we said our strategies were not only focusing during malaria season, but it's throughout the season because the weather is unpredictable from time to time. Hence, we said we continuously encourage working closely with other partner organizations, other sectors of the society. We continuously encourage, but also we try to alert our clinicians to say, even if our malaria season when they see patients with malaria symptoms, they should not only focus on other diseases, if it's flu, any other outbreak of other diseases, but they must also try to test these patients for malaria in case. Because in most cases, we've realized that people, when they present with the symptoms, which are not only common for malaria, like your headache, your fever, your chills, your muscle or joint pains, these are symptoms which are also associated with other health conditions. Hence, we encourage our clinicians to say, please, when you test the patient, try to do holistic mm. approach in order to ensure that you don't miss out uh, one condition because we're only focusing on one condition. I just want to ask you one final question. 7,400 cases recorded between January and October, 17% locally acquired. As you've mentioned, we do have a problem with imported cases. Are you doing enough in terms of screening at ports of entry? Definitely, we are doing enough uh, screening. And I said uh, earlier on to say our screening and testing at this uh, border gate in these uh, three provinces, uh, Limpopo, Pumananga, and Kedeten, is throughout the years, not only during malaria season. So this is one of the strategies that we believe is going to assist us to detect a these imported cases uh, in order to refer right. those who display signs and symptoms to the nearest health facility. Foster Mahali, thank you very much indeed. Speaking for the Minister of Health. MoneyWeb at Midday. For all your up-to-date stories. 
The organization Public Interest South Africa says it's deeply concerned about allegations made by Mtunzi Mdwaba, the ex-chair of Productivity South Africa and also the chief executive of Tuja Capital. Regarding a reported attempt to secure a 500 million rand bribe in connection with a 5 billion rand deal with the Unemployment Insurance Fund. I want to make some sense of this from uh, Public Interest South Africa. Tebo Khas, uh, a very warm welcome to you. Very quickly, give me the context. Can you summarize the nature of the allegations that were made? Yes, uh, thank you for the opportunity, Jeremy. Um, in, in sum, what Mr. Mdwaba is alleging is that Certain ministers, three ministers uh, to be precise, had approached him with regards to the 500 billion, uh, I mean, sort of 5 billion uh, tender or uh, deal that he had sought to secure at the UIF, and they were asking for 10% of that 5 billion amount to 500 million. I believe today I saw some reports that it's actually mentioned one of the ministers as, as uh, who have been alleged to be implicated as. Uh, Minister Nglesi, the Minister of Labor and, 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 and Employment. And we do know t- that there's been a long-running um, uh, skirmish between the Minister Nglesi uh, and, and Mdaba on various uh, issues, including while Mr. Mdaba wa- was sought to be appointed as a DG of the International Labor Organization. So we're not sure really what the motive is, and we're not sure about the veracity of such allegations. And we still don't know who the other two ministers are, but all that we also know is that he's alleged that there are intermediaries who are actually negotiating that 10% uh, bribe uh, with him or through him with Tuja Capital, his company. Can you detail for me what the ramifications might have been if this deal on the UIF had proceeded uh, with the, without the bribe being exposed? It's unfathomable. You know, I mean, $5 billion, I just don't know how much you can how many RDP houses you can build with five billion. But certainly because this money belongs to workers who contribute monthly uh, through to the unemployment insurance fund, um, one cannot but imagine how much the fiscals would have lost um, and whether that such amount would have been recoverable had those vigilant and very upright um, senior officers at the UIF didn't, didn't push back. Um, and five billion is a lot of money. Uh, you know, the economists can re- can really tell us how many families you can feed, how many um, how many stipends you can pay out. But there's a lot of money, mm. uh, Jeremy. And, and 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 to the extent that half of it, two and a half billion, was given as a as a, a, a as a grant in kind. Uh, I mean, it means that at least fifty percent of it was sure to have. There was, it was it was assured that it was not going to come back if it had really left the, the coffers of the UAF. And again, it raises the questions, does it not, around principles of transparency and good governance, which in this particular case seem to be uh, completely absent. No, absolutely. absolutely. To start with, I mean, you ask yourself, how does a company that is allegedly being set up two, two days before the deal gets to now be se- securing a $5 billion deal, a company that is not even vet registered, and it's, it's taking money from employees who are UIF registered, and it's probably not even UIF registered itself. So it's really alarming. And 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 for us, you know, it just shows the extent to which the rot and and lack of shame that permeates through the public uh, 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 sector. Uh, and and in, people are not even ashamed by, from by the Zondo report. It appears it looks like there's wanton corruption just continues unabated. So very quickly, how and should this be investigated and who should be investigated? 
we believe that, first of all, the presidency must take note of this, and he must appoint with immediate effect. Um, I do not know if parliament would also be required to, 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 to be involved in being, touching on the ethics, but certainly an investigation ought to be instituted to make sure that we remove any uh, fears of, I mean, to alleviate any public trust that is eroded uh, in the, in the, in, in, by mm-hmm. the public in, the, in government. And, and either the hawks or somebody else must actually be tasked to make sure that they expedite this, they inv- this inv- investigation or any investigation, including that of Mdwaba and circumstances. But what, what are your expectations as far as uh, Mr. Mdwaba are concerned? Well, what are our expectations of that? Why did you sit with this information when it was important, when it was, um, it could have approached the authorities in December when it was first allegedly approached? Because they could have set up a sting to make sure that any individuals who are alleged to have been well to be corrupt actually could be caught but instead he waited until the minister has stopped this deal which raises questions as to what is his motive but be that as it may motive is not important we want to make sure that we get to the bottom the authorities get to the bottom of of this issue and make sure that any wrongdoing all those who are found to be have done any wrong actually account for their actions to boho has thank you very much indeed top stories to keep your eyes and ears on on the MoneyWeb website today, Diskem has, for the first time, disclosed the impact of a controversial internal memo penned by the then Chief Executive Officer Ivan Saltzman in October 2022 that prohibited the appointment and promotion of white people within the group. All of this raises the question of executive communication and the damage of a leak as well as C-suite responsibility. Clive Simpkins is one of the country's top communications coaches and strategic thinkers and joins us now. And first up, Clive, how should should chief executives then approach the drafting and dissemination of internal communication to prevent misinterpretation and backlash such we such as we've seen? Jeremy, bottom line is that the chief executive shouldn't be drafting that stuff. There should be a really competent comms team, and I always say in corporate, think of it like a big funnel, and every man and his dog must be throwing their information into the top of the funnel, but eventually it must be shaken down and get to the molecule at the bottom, which is the essence that every person in that organization who is authorized to speak to the media would be singing off the same song sheet. And it's a problem when you have somebody like Ivan Saltzman, for example, uh, who was behind that memorandum uh, sent out by Discount. And Ivan is a wonderful business person, but he's not a brilliant communicator. I've met him. So what they're doing is the old Afrikaner adage of you've got a dog sitting on your stoop, but you're doing the barking yourself. So, Clive, to extend the animal metaphor then, the the horse has already bolted in this particular case and is evidenced in the results from the company that we've seen. But theoretically, what immediate steps can be taken then to mitigate damage once communication like this has been leaked and negatively received by the public? Is there anything that you can do? Can you pull it back? You know, you can't pull it back. And even if you go out with the sincerest apology. The point is, it's out there. And, you know, they have a reputation for burying their heads in the sand. Um, There are numerous very disturbing uh, videos on social media, for example, with in particular young black women being arrested by Dischem security staff. Um, And each and every time, uh, Dischem have tried to sidestep it 
by saying our security is outsourced. Now, whatever happens under the umbrella of your organization or my organization is our responsibility. We can't say it's security's fault. So DISCAM has a pattern when things go wrong of not actually handling them well by responding quickly. I'll give you another example. I encountered some racism from one of the white clinic sisters when I had a young black kid with me going in for an inoculation, and I talked about it on social media. This camp didn't contact. I then took it up with the store manager concerned, who escalated it to head office. Eight months later, I have never had a contact about it. So they definitely, in the days of... Uh, um, uh, Lynette Saltzman, you may remember her with the Discam Foundation, there seemed to be a very coherent PR strategy. Mm. And at the moment it isn't. They run away when things go wrong. So, Clive, broadly then, from a strategic communications perspective, how can any company, whether it's Discam or anybody else, ensure that its core values are clearly and effectively communicated internally and externally to avoid the kind of confusion and controversy that we're talking about? Bottom line is you need a a small committee. It could be like three people from three different arms, but certainly one of the marketing or communications in the organization. And anything that is likely to cause a ruckus in the public domain should be put before these people, and they need to very carefully consider something. You know, it was Robert Townsend who owned, or who was the chief executive of Avis Rented Car. Robert always said, make decisions as if you own the company. And if people sit down there and they think, if I owned this camp, how would I handle this thing? Inevitably, you make a sensible decision. So it's a question of too many people. It's like the ANC. Too many people talking about the same thing and giving opinions instead of actually working to a strategic plan. But Clive, it's also tough for any chief executive, I imagine, to balance the need for candid internal communication with the potential risks and leaks and negative public perception that we have seen. They've they've got to be allowed to talk freely internally, haven't they? They should theoretically, Jeremy, but the biggest problem today is your highest risk of sabotage in an organization is from somebody inside, somebody that you overlooked for a promotion or you spoke to them abruptly or you wouldn't give them paternity leave when they wanted it. So when they can stick it to you, they will. And the bottom line with the chief executive speaking is that the chief executive and indeed the reputation of that organization should metaphorically be balance sheet items. So if he moves up or the image of the of the organization is damaged, you get the kind of knock-on effect that you got with the discount mm-hmm. results. So I would say organizations need to look at it this way. If your chief executive is going to communicate something like Ivan Saltzman did at the time, the wording of that thing is crucial. You can't go and say, we can't employ more white people. What you want to say is something like, I really need your assistance in beefing up our black economic empowerment component within the organization. And I want you to put that up top as a priority and work for that. That would send a very different set of signals from saying, what if you don't employ more white people? Clive Simpkins, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. From music and television streaming to gaming, generative AI and advertising, 2022 was a challenging year for many sectors within Africa's entertainment and media industry. 
Falling stock markets, rising interest rates and the tapering of pandemic-era growth trends also leading to slower rates of expansion compared to rebound growth experienced in 2021. But in spite of all that, overall revenue did rise across the industry in 2022. All of that is the top line from the PwC 2023 Entertainment and Media Report. And with us now is Charles Stewart, PwC South Africa Entertainment and Media Partner. Charles, firstly, what impact then did the steep cost of living increases have on consumer spending when it came to entertainment and media products? Good afternoon, uh, Jeremy. Um, so, Jeremy, from an overall uh, perspective, certainly that cost of living crisis has put pressure on consumer spend. Um, so we've seen uh, we've seen consumers pulling back, right, um, in that regard, and uh, certainly that growth, as you mentioned, has stabilised, right. So we've seen from the 15% that we saw in 2021, we've seen it, you know, come down to around 8.8%, and that continued pressure is uh, meaning that our forecast is only scheduled to to grow at around 5.5% through to 2027. Mm-hmm. So certainly, consumer spend is uh, is one of the areas that uh, that has been under. A, a lot of pressure in our outlook. What, what specifically in terms of media and entertainment were consumers pulling back on? So what we're seeing um, certainly is in some of the areas, like, for example, um, you know, your traditional, your traditional TV. So people are swapping out potentially sort of more expensive, um, maybe subscription TV options into, into cheaper bouquets. We're seeing, um, you know, certainly globally that people are cancelling some, some of their streaming options as well. So we've still got room for growth in those, you know, in those areas here in South Africa. Um, but, you know, certainly we are seeing in those, uh, in those sort of more traditional media um, areas, uh, we are seeing that they are not necessarily going for those more expensive options, but uh, also looking to spend uh, on maybe slightly cheaper digital alternatives um, into music streaming, video streaming, etc. So it was fairly brutal then for the industry in 2022. How did they respond? What strategy shifts did they undertake? So your players are really looking at how they can diversify some of their revenue streams. So where there is pressure potentially on some of the traditional sort of subscription-based revenue streams, those players are looking to see, well, how can they diversify some of that into maybe having some ad-supported revenue streams. Um, we've seen how they are also looking to bundle um, value-added uh, options onto their existing streams that keep people invested maybe in slightly more expensive products but they're expanding the options, right? So if we think about someone like, uh, like a multi-choice, for example, we've seen them add a number of you know, options in terms of Showmax, Disney+, Plus, um, various options that allow you know, the subscribers to maybe be, still be paying you know, a, a premium price, but getting more bang for their buck in terms of what they actually receive. And just finally, in 2022, you and I wouldn't have had a conversation about artificial intelligence, but going forward, that's going to be a big player next year and beyond. So artificial intelligence is interesting. I think everyone is still trying to see exactly where this where this uh, where this ends up. But artificial intelligence has the ability, obviously, to create a lot of content on mass. Um, exactly where that content is going to end up, whether it's going to create a glut of fairly generic content, or whether it's still going to have the required creativity that draws consumers uh, to those to those various entertainment options, that obviously remains to be seen. Um, and certainly within the industry. Um, like we saw, for example, over in Hollywood, uh, it's not without some controversy in terms of, you know, people, you know, wanting to assess exactly what the impact is going to be on your existing creative uh, writers and, um, you know, content producers within the space. So, yes, it's got, uh, it's got a lot of potential um, and can, you know, certainly create uh, a lot of content in the addressable space. But uh, exactly where it all ends up over the, you know, over the coming years 
remains to be seen. Always a mine of useful and fascinating in, uh, entertainment and uh, and information. The PwC uh, twenty twenty three entertainment and media report. Uh, Charles Stewart from PwC. Thank you very much indeed. As we finish the program, other stories on our radar. News twenty four is reporting that the transport minister was robbed and her bodyguard stripped of their guns while travelling on the N three near Heidelberg Monday morning. And Reuters is reporting that the group of seven support for Ukraine in its war with Russia will not be affected by the intensifying conflict in the Middle East. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon every weekday and then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.